0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And this morning I received an email from Leonard Picard and he wished us all a happy bicycle day. And he also sent a recording to a recent conversation that he had with his friends at the London Psychedelic Society. Well, I know that you've been wondering how he's doing now that he's been released from prison after more than 20 years. So, without any further ado, here is Leonard Picard.
1: Hello, good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Annie Olekshuk. I'm one of the co-directors of the Psychedelic Society. I feel very, very honored to um, have you here tonight during this special event um, with a very, very special guest, uh, William Leonard-Picard. Before I invite Leonard, I just want to briefly share a fascinating story of his life with you all. Um, On July 27, 2020, Leonard was released from prison after serving 20 years um, of two life sentences, for producing what the United States government alleged was 90% of words LSD. Um, He is now employed in New Mexico, defending the rights of the Hispanic community. During his incarceration, under the most extreme conditions, he wrote in pencil over five years, a semi-autobiographical book, um, The Rose of Paracelsus, which is a renowned psychedelic masterpiece. Prior to his arrest, uh, Leonard was the deputy director of drug policy at the University of California, conducting research uh, on drug issues in the United States, Russia and Middle East. He continued uh, those inquiries during his sentence as well. And the key focus of his research uh, in drug policy is opioid epidemic in the United States and worldwide. Without further ado, I would like to invite uh, Leonard on screen here. Hello, Leonard. How are you?
0: Hello, Anya. Looking well. Lovely to see you again. And hello to our listeners uh, from the great southwest on the high mesas and plains of the great American desert.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor to have you as a guest. I read about you years, years ago, and... um, having you today as a guest is such a privilege and I feel really, really happy. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, me and the community of the Psychedelic Society.
0: And an honor, thank you, and an honor for me as well. I'm very much a strong supporter of the London Psychedelic Society and uh uh you and colleagues and dear friends in London. Very much appreciated.
1: Thank you so much. That's super kind. (laughs) So, Leonard, please let me know, um, how are you today and what are you doing nowadays after your release from jail?
0: Well, let me correct that briefly. Uh, uh, Jail is an interesting word which is applied to um, those with very short sentences for uh, minor infractions uh, up to a year uh, in little cages. My situation, however, was um, 20 years in a maximum security federal prison. uh, A completely different circumstance for um, more serious offenses, uh, some of which I I can barely describe uh, some of the individuals there. Great violence. I want
1: to get, get into the stories from, well, Would would you call it prison? Then I suppose we can call it prison to keep it short. I want to go back to this in a bit, but I'm really curious. How is your life now? What are you up to today? And how have you been spending your time since you got out?
0: Well, upon release, I uh, began to uh, settle in Santa Fe. I have family here, a son here, now at Boulder. And the first few mornings, I walked on the trails. Santa Fe has hundreds of miles of trails uh, in the dry desert. It's a high desert plateau. To the west one can see far mesas with clouds at the bases and long many miles of uh, huge vistas wide open spaces as they say, ultra blue sky, often cloudless, uh with juniper and pignon and mesquite, exotic southwestern uh plants. And then as I mentioned, uh Behind me a few miles is the Sangre de Cristo Ridge, named by early Spanish settlers. Many dry riverbeds called arroyos. So we can walk in trails by the arroyos, as the townspeople often do in the morning. So in the early mornings of the first uh, few days and weeks of release, I would uh, wake at dawn, as was my practice, uh, just before dawn. And go on these lengthy walks for hours, uh, watching the sun rise over the desert and the far mesas. And uh, little bunnies would run across the trail in front of me, and uh, townspeople, girls with uh, pigtails would come jogging by and go, Good morning, hi. And I hadn't experienced this kind of a gentleness and soft reception of society um, in decades. In uh, prison, everyone was. Well, half the people were armed
2: with um, homemade knives made from um, stolen metal. One would see on the walls uh, stars from the sharpening of the knives crisscrossing back and forth to get an edge on them. Um, the larger ones were called bone crushers and they were a foot or, foot or, foot or more long. Uh,
0: quite frightening. But but Santa Fe, since you ask, is a charming uh, bohemian artistic community uh, full of artists and writers. Uh, there's also a, um, an academic, many academics here that are part of the uh, Los Alamos National Laboratories just to the north
2: on the high Mesa there, the origin of the first atomic bomb. Uh, the blast site called Trinity is only a few miles south of Santa Fe. So we have many lab people wandering around, but mostly uh artists and writers um the uh, uh all of the housing and this is holds true for the entire state of New mexico is made of adobe, brown walls for the little blue wooden doors um by state law, everything is adobe, even the um the petrol stations if you will um The federal and state buildings are all adobe.
0: So it has a certain charm which is uh, not seen in other parts of America. It's on truly, deeply Native American uh, and
2: Hispanic influence. Uh, A real mix of cultures.
1: Nice. So you've been surrounded by beauty and nature, uh, which is such a big contrast, obviously. what you just described uh with all the violence and and really really horrible um setting um so how do you feel do you feel full of life now that you're out or is that quite a lot to get used to how do you feel inside
2: the first few days were of course like being born one was um just learning to walk and to speak and to feel again as though great barriers were being dissolved and released. Meeting people, I uh, am encountering lots of people personally, both personally and online, and having um, a glorious time uh, making new friends and acquaintances and interacting and working steadfastly and uh, on various projects. So it's a, a very happy time in a relaxing time. Um, I could not be um, more happy. I have a loving family and um, uh, many friends, uh, some of whom are listening to this today and am well supported. Uh, it's a great gift of grace, uh, a gift from above in a way. Uh, being released was something of a miracle there were quite hurdles, uh, enormous hurdles to overcome. And we, we can talk about the process of release if you wish, uh, later in this broadcast, but, uh, extremely rare and extremely wonderful. Well, we
1: are all happier out. There was a lot of people, um, kind of in the background here in UK and in states who are big fans and supporters and I know Julian Bain was writing to you and you were
2: yes, he was writing uh, to you hello Julian he is a dear friend Nikki and heaven <laughs> yes, he's read a number of chapters in my book uh, on podcast by uh, Kat and Alexa Lakey in uh, New York and Santa Cruz are now are listening today um, so uh, Julian has been just wonderful throughout this whole thing and before release was a great supporter. I spoke at Ben's uh, breaking convention at Greenwich uh, in, in support of everything. And it was that type of kindness, that type of heart that Julian brought forth, Julian and Nikki, that helped sustain me in the darkness when there seemed to be no hope at all, not a vestige of it. Julian and Nikki kindly wrote and uh, spoke on the phone and were very comforting and from that human kindness um, somehow there was the courage to go go forward and the door is open quite miraculously thank you um so you shared a bit but
1: would you be able to share a bit more about your time in this high security prison? And um, any are there any particular sto- stories that you want to or wi- willing to share with us that had the most profound effect on you in some way?
2: The hardest part was not the 30 foot walls <clears throat>
0: or the razor wire or the many guard towers or the loudspeakers or the indignities or abuse or the
2: specter of dying there or the endless coldness of it all the greatest difficulty for me was the loss of loved ones i uh, my family has in large part um, become very close and i'm i'm very blessed with um three children um but there was also there are also great losses of the heart unspeakable losses as though one were uh, deeply in love and watched it slowly die and that was the most difficult part Not the trials or the movement or the continual leg chains, arm chains, belly chains, handcuffs, on and off, on and off, endlessly, the rattling of chains, the slamming of steel doors, the late night screaming of men, endlessly. That was not as difficult as the loss of love. Watching love slowly die, watching hopelessness come in. I, um, of course, I'm not alone in these feelings. Uh, every person incarcerated for decades experiences this, <clears throat> and many uh, never see a reawakening of the love and affection that I've felt in the last few months. Many have no contact with the outside world. I was privileged. To have my family uh, in large part very close and friends very close Uh, that sustained me throughout this period. But there are many men, many in prison that have no communication with family or the outside world. So prison becomes their world. This is it. This small village, extremely violent tribe. Um, And that is their reality. I think we will see decades, hopefully decades or, or shorter, but certainly a century hence. We'll look back upon this time as uncivilized in terms of long-term incarceration for nonviolent crimes. <clears throat> not to say that some individuals should not be restrained. I routinely had lunch with uh, murderers, violent rapists um, people uh, whose crimes <clears throat> were so severe i I I cannot describe them uh, to you in this podcast, nor would I describe them to my family. Uh, the crimes are uh, too horrific to be discussed uh, among sensitive individuals, uh, being surrounded closely. By such persons was uh, quite the experience. At the same time, there were many who should not have been there, or many who uh, society would p- profit more greatly by putting them electronic monitoring at home. Who would be perfectly punished by having the restraints of electronic monitoring adequately punished um, for whatever infraction. Uh, My favorite uh, recollection, and uh, perhaps one person of great meaning to me, um, incarcerated now, is uh, Ross Ulbrich. Uh, Young Ross Ulbrich was the founder of Silk Road, a uh, Bitcoin trading platform. We became uh, close friends. Uh, Ross uh, appeared in the last year. and. We spent many laps around the track talking. He's a very fine-looking young man, uh, perhaps uh, 36 now, a mechanical engineer out of Penn, uh, has a a beautiful um, friend's girlfriend that comes to see him every weekend, a programmer. In the visiting room, it was heartbreaking to watch the two do their one embrace hello, just a few seconds, their one embrace goodbye, very much in love, obviously, and the thought of Ross being there forever with his life sentence was, uh, uh truly heartbreaking to watch. I, I strongly encourage, uh, Ross as many supporters to uh, continue that. He loves, loves to hear from people. Uh, he meditates, uh, reads endlessly, writes, uh, he's a gentle soul. And uh, five or 10 years is quite enough for his particular infraction. Uh, even Elon Musk uh, recently stated that uh, a life sentence for uh, Mr. Albrecht uh, seems excessive. And knowing him personally <clears throat> and seeing the graciousness of his spirit, uh, I would tend to agree. So that's one memory of one individual. But there's so many individuals, you understand, um, in the penitentiary I just left, there were 2,000 people, like a small village. Uh, are no cars, of course. You walk everywhere, perhaps the same 50 yards back and forth to the food service area several times a day, or to our tattered library several times a day, or the dirt playing field uh, several times a day, and that's it. This small 50-yard loop, uh, incessantly repeated forever. But while doing so, one is passing people one knows very well, because one sees, we see each other every day. This long stream of good morning, good morning, good morning, hi, 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 hi. Like a close-knit, tight little village that can occasionally break out into... A homicide or a beating, but by and large relatively tranquil, and possessing of some remarkable individuals, some demonic individuals, some courageous individuals of relative innocence what a world and one
1: thing that world. Com- yeah, one thing that comes to mind is that victims of war on drugs are not only people that are actually in prison, but also their families, their kids, their their loved ones, their friends. Everybody's a victim of that. It's a horrible war that really needs to end ASAP.
2: Yes, everybody's a victim. You know, the pain is not just with the, the men but with or the women. The ten percent of the federal system are women. The pain is also with the families and children. I I feel uh, a great uh, loss and tenderness for for my own children who were raised in the last 20 years, brought up, as the English say, in the last 20 years uh, without their father. Just a distant voice on an occasional phone call interrupted by uh, admonitions that this call is indeed from the federal prison. several times during phone call but just 15 minutes uh, in which one tries to express one's feeling and, and, and love and tries to encourage uh, one's children and, and tries to raise them to the different stages of, of childhood and adolescence and young manhood young womanhood um <clears throat> quite remarkably i uh having done this i am now uh Great friends, and hopefully a father to my now-grown children, twenty and uh,
3: twenty-four.
2: We talk quite a lot, and and have a great time. And the moments I can spend uh, with them are the most precious. So, to sum up the prison years, um, I can say that when all when all is stripped away.
3: When one has lost, job, career, hope, uh, uh,
2: self-empowerment, possessions, houses, cars, clothes, everything, friends, everything. When one has lost everything, self-respect, all that remains, all that remains. Is the loved one's family and children, and that is the guiding light
3: in an absurdly deep darkness. So,
1: what kept you going? You you mentioned contact with people, and what else gave you hope? What what? Made you go through all this horrible thing. What kept you alive and not go completely crazy?
0: Um, my practice in uh, prison was t- <clears throat> to read. I, um,
2: am a devoted reader and, uh, entertainment for the men. Uh, we were all in housing units, perhaps a hundred men with seven televisions hanging from the ceiling, which were on. From five thirty in the morning till ten at night, and often all night, seven televisions on different channels uh something of a babysitter, if you will for um people that often don't read uh, a getaway. we took our vacations uh sometimes by watching film in my case i uh and a quite a few men did. Uh, it took to reading.
3: <clears throat>
2: so I, I had the pleasure of, of reading uh, the great literature for 20 years. It took uh, two years to get through Dickens and uh, Thackeray and Trollope and all the English greats. And my reading uh, stops with Virginia Woolf's death in 1943. So I was immersed in uh, Ed- Edwardian and Victorian literature for 20 years. That means from waking <laughs> every minute of the day when one wasn't working on legal documents, in an attempt to get home. Uh, uh, in my case, uh, one read, always a book in hand, wherever one went. Occasional conversations, but generally reading, and, and through this, the, the worlds of the, the great authors of the 19th century, primarily. So I'm very fond of carriages and horses, and ladies' gowns, and mannered language um, of of the 19th century. At the same time, uh, some technical, popular scientific technical works, uh, the Ray Kurzweil, the uh, great thinker in artificial intelligence, Uh, your own um, Nick Bostrom at um, Oxford and the Future of Humanity Institute, at the Oxford Martin School. I did quite a number of writings on uh, the future of AI, and I became very enamored of reading Nick's work. Um, Occasional books would arrive, gifts from friends, always a joy, along with letters. Um, One dear friend sent me a postcard twice a week for 20 years. Beautiful often hand-painted Japanese prints, the postcards with a kiss on it or a line of poetry. I kept them all, I had a mountain of postcards, maybe 20 feet high in a locker here in Santa Fe. I, I couldn't bear to lose one.
1: should make a giant artwork out of all of them, put them all on a wall.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I agree. I, I couldn't do that in, inside. We only could have five books. Of course, I had maybe 20 or 30, but, um we had to keep things in. They were more concerned really about whether our bed was made than whether, uh, things, uh, growth experiences were occurring in our lives.
1: There was one more thing you were busy, uh, when you were inside. It was writing your own book, obviously, The Rose of Paracelsus. And you wrote it with pen and paper or pencil and paper, right? And um, and can you tell us just a bit about a running, story and uh, the motives of the book?
0: Oh, Anya, you, you'll have to rephrase your. What's the question again? I'm so can sorry. You just,
1: can you just tell us a bit about the story and the motives of the book?
2: Oh well, the story and the motives are are quite different. Hmm. I um, at a great influence was the appearance um, uh, at the facility of a leading poet and writer, uh, Professor Emeritus, Regents Professor Emeritus at the University of Arizona, uh, Richard Shelton, a well-known American poet, well-published in the New Yorker and all about. Uh, Professor Shelton knows every poet, including and uh, in, in Russia. And, uh, Everyone comes through and uh, stays at his little cabana in, in uh, Tucson. Well, uh, Professor Shelton would visit once a week where we had a, a few men who liked to write. And somehow I became involved in that. And under his uh, guidance and uh, thoughtful tutoring and encouragement, um, I managed to write The rows over a period of five years and actually read every word to Professor Shelton for his feedback orally in our little narrow two hours on Friday when he would appear. Uh, occasionally, the class was disbanded due to violence occurring in one part of the institution. So guards would rush in with guns with pepper spray in them and clear everybody out shouting and this sort of thing and search us, body search us as we leave a beautiful writer's workshop where we're simply discussing uh, our thoughts and feelings. Uh, Quite a contrast in worlds. So being in Professor Shelton's workshop was being like being treated as a graduate student, like being treated as a human, one who innately had respect, which was something of a great novelty. So the time with, uh, Shelton was, uh, very precious. I, I learned a great deal. And he was delighted to see the, the book being, being published. Um, so that was the beginning of the, beginning of the row as I decided to, to write, but I didn't know how so i learned to force myself to sit down for an hour excuse me a half hour an hour an hour a day and do two two or three hundred words in pencil 6 p.m every day two or three hundred words not worrying so much about content or, or style just getting it down getting it out as uh, the writers are admonished just open a vein and let it bleed so a year went by. By well, that time, I'd learned enough about writing. So I looked at this massive 100,000-word manuscript of collected uh, 6 PM writings for the last year and, and thought, this is hopeless. There's no way I can possibly edit or massage this into something coherent, and tossed it into the trash. And started again using the techniques I had learned over the past year, <clears throat> but very thoughtfully trying to make something beautiful. What I personally thought was beautiful because I, I don't, I don't know how to satisfy a wide variety of individuals. So I wrote something that I
3: thought. Was interesting and beautiful,
2: and did it very seriously. And of course, always uh, reading, reading, reading constantly to, to see the, also the essential beauty of the wordcraft of of uh, the great writers, and the way of of sharing things. And so I would dig into my memories of the world having not seen it in, oh, by then, 15 years, to remember what a field of flowers looked like, or the sound of a stream, or how children laughed, or memories of situations I had been in personally around the world over the years, Berlin, Bangkok, London, because these memories <clears throat> were fading quickly. One one doesn't indulge in memories in prison. That's much too painful. So the world, to me, was becoming very frail, and I felt it was important to <clears throat> grasp at the last tendrils and get them down on paper, because someday someone somewhere might read this, perhaps, and perhaps it would reach them or touch them or lift their heart or mind.
3: So, without intent,
2: pen was put to paper. And it became no longer a daily chore, but a pleasure. One got into the zone where the feelings and the thoughts began to flow. At that point, I could write for many hours or or days, we're just pull back into the cell and get into these worlds that were so pleasurable and also painful to write about, um, that I felt there might be another who might enjoy reading this. And so in the editing process, which is the great bulk of the writing, I would try to make it perfect, try to make each sentence seen. Like a little long poem.
3: And then I realized
2: I could, I could describe any event. I could go wild. I could indulge my appetites. Uh, I could speak of extremes. I could speak of hallucinatory um, states. I could speak of the greatest, uh, pathos I'd seen of the impoverished of
3: the world. Um, and so I do.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and I encourage everyone to get a book and read it and find out further on. It's very beautifully written. Um, if you're a not a English native speaker it might be difficult, but I think you'll manage. <laughs> um, so, so near, near the start of the book, the protagonist describes an experience at a Zen Buddhist monastery, and this is based on your own experience from what I understand. So, what inspired you to follow the path of Buddhism, mm-hmm. and, and did you did having Buddhist practices help you uh, with the time spent in prison?
2: Absolutely, the uh, practice of uh, meditation—not so much the formal theologies of Buddhism, of the Tibetan or Zen, um, of the Vipassana practices—without um, the theology and the robes or the text, but the simple practice of sitting meditation a daily—I found it extremely hopefully even necessary uh, to survive, <clears throat> the mental and emotional force in which I was captive. Um, at times, I've been in facilities where the this, this, this screaming would not stop until three or four in the morning. The, the doors clanging, the sounds of thousands of voices, and, and no cessation of the sounds of the voices, and the, um, if you will, the vulgarities of language, the obscenities of a language so uh, used in such a cavalier and frequent manner, often by those who had not uh, had a... You know, Less command of language,
3: so to put it gently. Um,
2: within this, this, this harshness and this, this despair, if you will, the practice of meditation is like a peaceful pool, a clear, peaceful pool in which one simply went to one's center and watched all these emotions go by. and found a certain quietitude and nourishment therein. It's like the green growing edge of some newly born plant uh, that is flowering inside. Uh, A refuge, as the Buddhists say, one of the great refuges. So uh, that was my personal practice. Uh, in the late hours after a hard day, laying down in a hard bunk, surrounded by what might be considered a mausoleum. And of course, before bed, it's my, my practice to offer up prayers, being, being raised, um, in the Christian faith as a child. I would always offer a prayer before bed, not being able to sleep without it. And so I would pray for my family, my children,
3: my friends,
2: uh, by name. When Sasha died, I said a small prayer for Sasha every night for a year. I don't know if anyone heard it, except myself
3: but it was done in honor of him.
2: These days I might put in a plug for Sasha's new book. Now the listeners may not realize that The Nature of Drugs by Sasha Shogun, his collected lectures is coming out in May, hard bound 300 pages. Many, many blurbs in front by all, all sorts of uh, uh individuals uh central to psychedelic research and i have a, I have a small afterwards personally in there uh, having uh sat through these lectures in 1987 and actually listened to sasha deliver them i was privileged to put in a few comments for the nature of drugs
1: Therefore, we will make sure to also give exposure to the book on uh, our channels uh, once it goes out. Um, And I also wanted to talk to you um, about your life before imprisonment. Really, you had an academic career studying psychoactive substances. What what initially drew you to investigating altered states of consciousness?
2: Well, that's pretty easy to answer. Uh see. How should I dis- describe this? Um, um, I was 21. Can you imagine that?
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, 21. That's 50 years ago. Seems like the blink of an eye. 25 of which were spent in prison. Um,
3: 1968.
2: <clears throat> 2023 san francisco summer of love for the first great distributions of lsd by augustus stanley owsley fondly known as bear and um tim scully who is still with us a, a dear friend and uh nikki sand who just passed away a few years ago his wife, Usha, lives in London now. Um, yes. The first great detonation, I guess you will, uh, in those days of deployment of uh, large quantities of LSD, uh, caused um, a revolution much like we're seeing now. It was a great excitement and enthusiasm for some years. We'll get in words of caution and caution a little later in our discussion, perhaps. Uh, So being young in San Francisco in '68 was also quite a privilege. One saw the first uh, large-scale distribution of an exotic neurochemical among large populations. Uh, All of the 18 to 24-year-old cohort, the the favorite child of uh, drug policy people, the 18 to 24-year-old cohort, uh, shared by hand. This is pre-computer a pre-mobile phone, one communicated by a letter uh, or in person or phone booths. Uh, Young people um, had no elders to speak with about these extraordinary subjective phenomena that were occurring due to exposure to these materials we only had each other to talk to about it. So... I, I could, I would say that probably was without suggesting that I was a, uh, an early user or anything. Um, that would be a description of how interest in drug policy began. But at the time, there was no great academic circle of people interested in psychedelics. There was a small circle whose careers were at risk for even looking at these fringe way out, uh, not understood by mainstream America, sort of wild uh, drugs and, and people. Uh, now, of course, after so many years and so much suffering, we're seeing the mainstreaming of this phenomena. with um very excellent work work of great quality, double-blind studies by distinguished researchers at Hopkins, at Yale, at NYU, Berkeley. The great funding of this research in a very earnest and no-nonsense and rigorously controlled way with FDA oversight and all of that, worldwide, Imperial, Zurich, We'll probably see the Indians and Chinese as well begin to participate. A True third wave
3: revolution.
2: But one must remember the origins of the times when it was ridiculed, not understood,
3: severely punished,
2: laughable. Considered, uh, truly fringe and threatening to the political structure. <clears throat> and now things have changed considerably. It's quite, uh, quite amazing for me to come from the darkness of captivity into this bright light of global interest in worldwide clinical trials and a great deal of public discourse by, uh, by leaders and thinkers and uh, medical experts and academicians. A, a frenzy of interest. <coughs> excuse me. A friendly frenzy of interest.
3: Yeah.
2: I had no, <coughs> excuse me. I had no access to the internet. So I only heard bits and pieces of it that swallow away. But now I can see it and I'm delighted
3: and overwhelmed and uh, send great blessings to everyone and great hope for the future. You'll excuse me. I have to clear this throat a little bit. Sure. No worries at all. I'll take opportunity as well.
2: Excuse me, Anya. I'm not used to speaking so long. I don't do podcasts normally. This is um, because of the delight with what uh, the London Society is doing and to you personally.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, now it's quite a long uh, interview, but obviously our audience and yeah. myself, were so keen to ask you all those questions because you were away for so many years. And, and I actually wanted to ask you about the Renaissance that you see now, because as you said, you just saw tiny bits of news yeah. and suddenly you came out and it's just happening everywhere. It's like really becoming mainstream. Um, And you said you're hopeful and a bit overwhelmed, but in a good way. I also wanted to ask you, do you see any dangers? Do you see any shadow in this mainstreaming? And um, do you have any concerns about them gaining such popularity in the Western world so quickly?
3: Well, I'm glad
2: you asked.
3: (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
2: Now, you might consider me some sort of a wild-card West Coast uh, hippie. <laughs> uh, presumably responsible for hundreds of millions of doses of LSD. Allegedly. And therefore, I might be a liberal in many people's eyes. But there's a conservative element. And so I wish to insert a word of caution in what's going on now. Um, we're seeing a great influx of individuals, uh, capitalist corporations, uh, people who were accepting of this if it's mainstream, but not so accepting if it were a little further out. They've recently come in and may not have a great deal of personal experience with these substances. And may not realize uh, the strength and depth of the subjective changes one might experience. But one can go from a walk in the moonlight with friends and a feeling of the profundity and unity of all things, but a light-hearted feeling to a deep, life-changing, soul-rending theological confrontation with God, a writhing, convulsive change. Of course, everything is dose-dependent. So I'm not certain that the great influx of new individuals uh is aware of the range of, of subjective phenomena or has an appreciation for the the power of these materials or why they among those that consider them sacraments uh are considered sacramental or approach with a sense of reverence um,
3: So I am concerned uh,
2: about the widespread employment, uh, even me- under medical conditions uh, worldwide, of these materials. Let, let me give you <clears throat> what appears to be uh, a great contrast between the 60s and now. <clears throat> In the 60s, uh these materials were shared among friends quietly in a a clandestine way and often gently come explore with us you might like this this is something you should know about let's spend an evening together don't tell anyone this is a special privilege and above all don't give this to anyone with any problems. If a person's uh, ending a relationship, or breaking up with their lover, if a person is somewhat uh, bipolar, or schizzy or has any issues, don't give it to them because it may destabilize them or get them into difficult loops that can be extremely painful. You know, they might act out and run down the street, or worse. So the idea of giving these materials to an individual with any personal emotional difficulties was the unwritten rule. And so 99% of people exploring materials were, if you will, normal humans without major emotional problems, simply curious and young enough to withstand all the changes. Now, the paradigm is shifted completely. And while I realize the medical paradigm is necessary to get approval of these materials through government regulatory agencies, the medical paradigm nevertheless uh, insists on giving these materials as healing agents to people with problems. Depression, cluster headaches, PTSD, an increasing range of of possible applications. And all that's quite wonderful. But the point I'm trying to make is there's a great difference between giving it to an individual who simply wishes to explore to gain wisdom or insight or experience and giving it to a person who has a problem and we're going to fix it. But at the same time, the person with the problem may have very severe reactions and act out. And so while I see these medicines as uh, truly healing, both for normal individuals and those with grave emotional problems, I think that as approvals are obtained in various governments and and regions uh, throughout the world and applied by treatment providers of different levels of professional expertise. Uh, We're going to see some patient reactions that may challenge the current bubble of euphoria And I think we'll see these within three or four years or upon approval when you can really expose a patient population of say 100,000 people around the world. I think we'll see anecdotal reports and in the, liter- the medical literature, psychiatric literature, and certainly the news media of uh, people reacting in untoward ways. So I can only say that while the medical and psychiatric community certainly has my blessing for what it's worth, uh, and we must, you know, heal dreadful maladies by whatever medicines can be obtained, uh, that we must be extremely cautious and follow the, the paradigms established at Hopkins and NYU and Yale very carefully and select the patients very carefully. Some should be excluded and not subjected to this type of treatment. So I think that we'll see in the next three or four years a little blowback from the current state of enthusiasm and euphoria, wonderful as it is, is. I'm simply
3: suggesting that we should be prepared for that.
1: I agree 100% with you. And um, at the moment, all those new people who came in, as you said, they think they're going to heal everything with psychedelics. And it's becoming quite crazy right now. It's like they're really treating this magic silver bullet, magic pill for everything.
2: Well, that's so, true. May I state, Anya, that's simply characteristic of the early stages of one's uh, encounter with a substance. You see all these wonderful subjective effects and indeed they are great enthusiasm well, that's the upswing of the curve of any drug epidemic great enthusiasm also happened with cocaine and md may oh this is the great new panacea if you will and then there's a leveling out as you have a large body of people that are being initiated and then the problems began to set in. So then there's the downward sloping of the curve. This is characteristic of most drug epidemics. A great paper was written on it for RAND by the uh, drug policy uh, analyst uh, John uh, Calkins. And it was written on uh, using XTC, XTC as the model uh, some years ago. And uh, it's applicable to all drugs, this particular curve excitement phrase, the spread and proliferation phrase, the leveling off, and then the slight downstre- uh, downstream phase as it becomes integrated with society, for better or worse. But let me say that um, these sentiments are echoed uh, perhaps more severely by um, two women, uh, distinguished women, uh, Nora Volko, uh, MD, head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse in Washington, DC, NIDA. Uh, Nora is the uh, granddaughter of Trotsky, by the way. (laughs) Nora um, is concerned that the proliferation, large-scale proliferation by uh, MindMed field trip, uh, not to name particular corporations, the, the proliferation of uh, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, uh, ibogaine analogs, and what have you, uh, she's concerned that along with the proliferation, the medical use will be a resurgence in personal use outside the medical protocols. And some would argue that's great, that will change society. And it may in some ways, as though as the sixties changed society in some ways that were benevolent. But we may see a a great benevolent change in art and literature and music uh again. At the same time we may see a few problems. Nothing terribly harsh. Uh, David Nutt uh's great paper in at, at Imperial, David Nutt's great paper in Lancet, uh points out that psychedelics are really the least problematic substances on the, the great uh, drug spectrum. So we don't uh, expect to see any major uh, endemic, uh, long-lasting problems. But we're going to see a little burst of problems that will probably be been sensationalized. Um, the other uh, distinguished uh, female lead on the conservative side is... Um, and I, I'm not in communication with her, but Bertha Madras at Harvard Medical School, uh, a, a true conservative in drug matters, uh, very down on cannabis, for example. Um, but Bertha does point out well that, um, the treatment providers, uh, worldwide that are coming, um, range from, uh, highly trained individuals such as Dr. Griffiths at Hopkins um Franz Wildenbeater at, at Zurich. Uh, two, uh, individuals that may or may not have had, uh, personal experience with these materials and little or no training, often some retreat, uh, down in Bolivia. And meanwhile, they're giving this very powerful material to someone that's just curious. And, uh, goodness knows what will happen, uh, at that point, but I'm sure we'll hear of it. Uh, Bertha pointed out, Dr. Madras pointed out, that um, uh, we need to be very cautious that these drugs will be administered in ways that don't have the rigor and care that uh, Roland Griffiths employed
3: at Hopkins. Yes.
2: So I'm just simply saying here, be prepared be prepared for some uh, sensationalized anecdotal reports in the next few years. At the same time, I, I think uh, these materials can be uh, wonderfully healing in many ways, whether one is ill or not. And um, there's great hope for the future.
1: We we already see a lot of problem with those kind of retreats and underground facilitators who probably because psychedelics amplified them, they get into this like savior mode, you know, I'm basically giving medicine to others, but then they actually pra- their practice is really dangerous. So there were stories of people pushing their fingers in people's mouths. There were stories of pacing people uh, while tripping. There were stories like horrible stories of sexual abuse and, all kinds of things like that, like that. So, this is already happening, and I am really shocked it's not in the media yet. But Absolutely
2: I, agree with you. Absolutely yeah. agree with you, Anya. I, uh, <clears throat> a dear young friend in Oxford, a uh, the, young theologian there, uh, wrote me of a charismatic figure that appeared in the Oxford community <clears throat> involving uh, ayahuasca in which uh people were being drawn in by this uh charisma kind of a bhakti yoga worship of a leader and um he was <clears throat> engaging in the uh, sexual abuse if you will but uh such charlatans uh appear in any type of religious movement and they have appeared in the psychedelic movement in the past and are appearing even now so one must be very cautious with um, mountebanks and, and charlatans and snake oil salesmen and those that um, have a, a savior complex where this is a great healing medicine and, and this person is the one to explain it all to you. Okay, So um, I see a few of these entities sort of budding as I review the literature and, and learn more about what's going on. Um, Just be uh, careful. Uh, What was it Dylan said? uh, Don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters.
1: (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree with you 100%. And uh, I do hope that we go, I do hope you're not going to see many of those stories, but I'm aware we will probably see more of those horror stories, unfortunately. So we urge everyone, again, who's watching, before you go to a retreat, make sure you research it well. Ideally, go to someone that was recommended by someone else and be very, very careful, because there's loads of charlatans around, as Leonard uh, rightly said. Um, I have last question, because I'm aware of time, and I know audience will want to have the questions. Uh, during your time in prison, you wrote a lot about your concerns uh, on the opioid crisis. Uh, and. Uh, I want to find out what's your particular interest in this subject and also what is your opinion about how U.S. government is handling this crisis at the moment?
2: Well, to, to, to answer that difficult question, we'd have to go back to 1996 when I was a graduate student uh, at the Kennedy School. <clears throat> and My interest was determining, predicting, as was the interest of the criminal justice department there, uh, predicting what would be the next major drug of abuse at that time <clears throat> at that time, the concerns and the great malaise in America and abroad uh, were the legacy narcotics, if you will, well, not true narcotics, but a catch all phrase but cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, these three alcohol. <laughs> These three um, uh, malaises were responsible for most of the difficulties in, in drug settings, um, certainly in the United States, and, uh, and certainly Britain and Western Europe. Um, of course, uh, having close contact with Sasha, I realized, uh, and of course in my own research, I realized the likelihood of many analogs being created. <clears throat> not just in psychedelics but in every every known drug, variants of caffeine (coughs) uh, variants of morphine the fentanyls Um, so I began thinking about what would be the next major drug of abuse and I looked at it from the point of a manufacturer if I were a manufacturer underground manufacturer who cared not for people. What drug would I choose? What
3: would I make?
2: And I looked at analogs of cocaine, which is very popular in the 90s, and their synthetic protocols. And I looked at varieties of methamphetamine, and their synthetics abilities. And went through a range of drugs, not 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 even mentioning the word psychedelic at Harvard, and into the morphine analogs. And here we have something called fentanyl, which few people have heard of, other than anesthesiologists, which used as a neonatal um, uh, anesthetic, if you will, for um, surgery on newborns and children. Very rarely used in the 90s. It had only been invented in 63. But hundreds, if not thousands of analogs by Carl Jensen, Jensen Pharmaceuticals. I began looking at fentanyl. Well, this would be interesting. And I noticed several things. I noticed that it was a micro, excuse me, microgram range material. About the potency of LSD, which means a kilogram of fentanyl would be 10, 20 million doses. And then I noticed a, a more worrisome thing that the, the precursors, the starting materials for fentanyl were uncontrolled. There were no, no governments uh, thinking about making the, um, pro, the, precursors illegal, and they could be purchased in large quantities. And then I began looking at the synthesis, which was relatively complex, but could be made more simplified. And then I began talking to a number of heroin addicts in the Boston area about a small fentanyl batch that had been made by a fellow named Markhart, now deceased, in 93 in Boston that had killed a few hundred people, heroin users, injecting it. I looked at all these factors, ease of synthesis, availability of precursors uncontrolled, the substitution of fentanyl for heroin in the heroin market. And I realized that it was the ingredient for a perfect storm that unscrupulous manufacturer, unscrupulous clandestine chemist with sufficient skill that had some sort of access to the heroin market could synthesize this material and uh, make a very large income at the cost of hundreds or thousands of deaths. And I thought, having a little, little perhaps less faith in that particular subculture, that someone would actually do it. So I began looking at uh, a small fentanyl outbreak, one in Boston, and I flew to Moscow and interviewed a number of addicts there and uh, regulatory officials of a small outbreak in Moscow, and wrote a lot of papers and gave little talks and um, predicted that because of these factors coming together in a perfect storm, that one day, a few years, or a decade or two hence, someone somewhere, likely outside the United States, because things were more relaxed, regulatory, one could obtain precursors and hide more easily. Someone somewhere outside the United States that had access to a very large distribution system um, would begin making this. And I delivered this uh, lecture at the Faculty Club and uh, did my thesis on it. But happily, nothing happened. Uh, Sasha and I talked about it quite a lot. He wrote a 1974 paper called "The Future uh, Future Drugs," in which uh, he dedicated uh, a few lines to phenyl being a likely culprit for a new drug of abuse. I had the same concept about the same time, but did the did the groundwork of interviewing people that had survived a small outbreak in Boston. Nothing happened. Years went by. And I was arrested, of course, for uh, alleged LSD manufacturer on a certain scale. And entered the prison system. And spent a few days of my five days in testimony, and happily I did this in retrospect. uh, Spent a few days of my uh, five days uh, in a federal trial testifying about the fentanyl work. In 2003, the prosecutor asked me what I did. I explained what I did regarding fentanyl in great detail with the original overheads and documents for faculty club lectures and all the Harvard uh, documentation was shown to the jury in an effort to explain uh, what I was doing in my day job. And, of course, it was considered uh, irrelevant and not of concern. And um, that was 2003.
3: And then I entered the prison system.
2: And One night in 2015, I was watching one of the seven televisions hanging from the ceiling on a break from reading Dickens. And I began talking about this drug called fentanyl. <clears throat> Which, from a Mexican source uh, lab in Mexico, had uh, killed a thousand people suddenly. I began paying a little more ten- closer attention to the nightly news and watched this thing from 2015 to 2016 and' 17 expand into uh um, in modern drug policy, the currently the world's greatest killer. 100,000 deaths annually, uh, proliferating uh, unrestrained even now throughout many countries, multiple labs popping up, simplified procedures by untutored individuals, um, creating this uh, impure quantities of this material. And I watched that explosion from 2016, 2017. And my mentor at Harvard was then at NYU, Mark Kleiman, uh, uh, to me a beloved individual who stayed in touch for many years. Uh, We spoke monthly for 20 years. Mark somehow got the, uh, all these documents over to uh, the the American think tank Rand, who looked at them. And then (coughs) uh, Rand quoted my work in their 2019 book the future of fentanyl and other synthetic substances. And that may have been one, that early prediction and recommendations for control may have been one of the factors in in my release. Um, I'm deeply appreciative uh, to the think tank for um, recognizing the early effort. But we did see it coming, and federal agencies were told But it seems science fiction. It seems science fiction until you have enough deaths, and it keeps growing and growing and growing. It gets quite scary. And the media then takes the drum. Uh, So now the American government is uh, doing what it can. It did uh, make uh, the uh precursors are legal in about 2015 in america although worldwide i think the un has not yet still acted uh, on it so this thing is um, a raging beast that's out of control and continues to grow Uh, i'm not quite sure what to do to slow it down other than uh, advise people to uh, Uh, look at the great gift of life uh, that we all have. And there's no need to inject yourself with opioids to seek some state of bliss when bliss is uh, at hand in a moment's reflection.
1: Thank you. What comes to mind is just if government listen to scientists quicker, then maybe work would be better sometimes, especially talking about drugs, basically. Uh, Yes, you're probably also aware uh, when Professor Nat released his um, research about, uh, well, when he said, uh, that MDMA is safer than horse riding, uh, you know, and he was basically fired uh, from the government as an advisor. So it's happening everywhere in the world that governments just don't listen to the scientists and they think they know better. So I hope those days will end one day.
2: That's a terribly unfortunate incident. Uh, David Nutt is uh, the uh, a leading light, if not the leading light uh, in uh, drug policy. And the uh, United Kingdom has lost a stalwart, a visionary, and extremely important individual, who has an innate grasp of the future of how these things are going to play out. The United Kingdom would do very well to listen to Doctor Nutt carefully.
1: I agree with you 100%. Uh, we had Professor Renat um, at an event a few weeks ago uh, for a two-hour interview as well, so um, it was really beautiful. I was not the one interviewing, but it was just an honor to have him as a guest. As it's a big honor to have you, of, of course, yeah. I will say that again, because it's a really beautiful conversation. Like I'm done with my questions now, I'm going to go to um, audience questions, I'm going to read them out to you. Um, there is 12 so far. We might not be able to cover them all, but we'll, we'll see what we do. I know you're also tired. And so apologies that it's taking so long. Make sure to drink water <laughs> uh, oh, before the you. next round. <laughs> it's a water break. So questions, guys, remember, vote up those questions if you like something, because we might have to skip you. So question number one from anon- anon- anonymous attendee. Could you tell us about your first experience of LSD? No. That's fine. I am, that's completely cool. We can move on. <laughs> um, next one. As a Buddhist, were you, were you able to find compassion for those that kept you in prison and those who you met in prison who had been convicted of violent crimes?
2: That's such a difficult question. Such a good question, and th- thank you for asking. Um, it's difficult to not have anger to those that um, tried to take one's life away by putting one in a small cell, immob- immobile, mobile forever. Um, It's difficult not to have anger for uh, guards that are insulting or subjecting to indignities. It's difficult not to have anger for for inmates that are unnecessarily cruel or have committed crimes that are so heinous that I cannot possibly even describe them. So can the Buddhist, or for that matter, the Christian heart of compassion be enlarged enough to forgive? I uh upon my release I received uh two very kind overtures from two brave men who were government witnesses against me one time dear friends and then out of fear uh, began to uh, testify in the courtroom and as a result of their testimony, of course, much other evidence, uh, I was convicted.
3: But recently, uh,
2: I received a little welcome home note from them and actually contacted them and had, um, a wonderful conversation and a visit recently. Um, because they were first and foremost friends with whom I went through quite remarkable changes and experiences. And only lastly were they fearful individuals surrounded by government agents with guns who were desperate to save their families and therefore made the decision to sacrifice me. So, yes, I have found a good portion of the heart of compassion. in the last years in prison, and and certainly more recently. So yes, it is there.
3: Thank you
1: so much for sharing this. Um, Next question is from Michelle Baker-Jones, who's actually one of the psychedelic uh, therapists, one of the researchers currently in the UK uh and my question is can you share one of your most profound psychedelic experiences and describe how it impacted your life
2: well as you recall when the individual earlier asked what was my first uh, psychedelic experience uh, i said what could i describe it i said no and the reason i did is because my posture at trial under oath in a federal courtroom was that I have no involvement with any of this, and I'm not a drug user?
1: You can get into psychedelic state by breathing though um holotropic breathing, right?
2: Yes, but I will answer this question
1: <laughs> okay
2: <laughs> um but let me do it in indirectly
3: That's is, completely cool
2: <laughs> and I wrote about it in the rows. There was a, um, the most hallucinatory, um, subjective experience he's talking about. Okay. What was that? I can't speak of it personally since I've never had this sort of thing, right?
3: Of course.
2: <laughs> but, um, I can't speak of it anecdotally as I, I did in The Rose. And, and for those that haven't read it, uh, I'll try to repeat it now. I'm speaking of an, I wrote of a chemist called, um, Indigo, the scene in, uh, a remote part of northern Italy one night with a remote clandestine laboratory making hundreds of millions of doses of acid. And in the book, uh, and this, this may be a real person or it may not be a real person, while some think it, it may be yours truly, or not. I can't address those issues, but I will describe the scene. Make of it what you will. Indigo, whoever that is, is climbing a ladder in a clandestine acid lab one night in protective garments, because there's constant micro dosing exposure 50 micrograms a day for weeks, or months, or years. The first microdoses were underground manufacturers, just from being around it. Indigo is climbing his ladder late, ladder late at night in his protective garments among fields of glassware and exotic custom-designed materials for synthesis, something that looks extra planetary. The lights are all dark red because uh, LSD is a fragile molecule that can be broken by exposure to sunlight or bright light. So typically, uh, large-scale synthesis from my interviews, I've learned, um, tend to be uh, synthesized under red light if one is very careful. So the room is bathed in red light, and it's kind of vibrating and breathing for those that are exposed to microdoses, even with protective garments. <laughs> And perhaps uh, Hildegard von Bingen is playing on a chant or uh, Native American flute music or Hindu chants or something magical and mystical as the auditory spectrum is filled with sounds. And you're in this um red-lighted room carrying a large beaker with a large separatory funnel, if you will, with 10 million doses in it. Well, those who have had one strong dose may, may appreciate the idea of um, enough to light up the city of New York. So Indigo is climbing up this little ladder. It's two in the morning. It's been weeks of synthesis and he's rather fatigued and makes glass to glass contact. It's a little slippery and suddenly there's huge shattering and liquid spilling everywhere and and indigo falls on his back into a po- pool of glass shards and liquid. And let me explain what the liquid is. It's methylene chloride, a solution of um, LSD and 10 million doses in methylene chloride in about two or three liters okay, of this stuff. Methylene chloride is an interesting material. And to appreciate it, let me say that it goes immediately through your skin there is nothing that will prevent it from going through your skin it will dissolve latex gloves instantly Uh, it doesn't hurt you you breathe it out and uh, it's slightly narcotic-like but relatively non-toxic non-flammable the lsd is dissolved in this so since the methylene chloride goes right through your skin instantly so does the other, whatever happens to be dissolved in it. So Indigo was exposed in that instant of shattered glassware to 10 million doses all over his upper body, face, neck, hands, seeping into his skin, falling onto his back in a pool of it. And to your, your questioner, your therapist questioner. Shall we describe the hallucinatory outcome from that dose? You probably want to know.
3: Yeah. I'm the la- largest,
2: <clears throat> easily the largest human exposure in history. So what, what happened? Subjecti- what
3: happens to indigo? Tell us.
2: <laughs> what happens subjectively? Uh, Indigo regained his footing and his legs are shaking. He's actually shaking in fear. Here people do shake in fear.
3: Yeah.
2: Because Indigo thinks, uh, he will either die or have convulsions until he dies,
3: but he can't call an ambulance. One, he's
2: 20, 30 miles out in the desert. Um, two, it would be sort of an unseemly event for medical evacuation people to walk into this extraterrestrial lab with, you know, containers and beakers and pumps and under red light with Von Bingen playing. What would they think? <laughs>
3: <laughs> right.
2: So Indigo rushes into the shower. Tears off his uh, tears off his uh, protective gear, uh, space shields, <laughs> goggles, gloves, moon suit, boots. He's naked in the shower, holding onto the shower, twisting the knobs, soaping himself, trying to get this material off of his skin. Meanwhile, uh, the angels are coming for him. <laughs> <laughs> He's on uh, worlds with a worlds without end. Cast upon beaches of uh, unspeakable terrains, um, flashing phenomena that have no words, and Indigo is praying, dear God. Those of you that have another, have had extreme experiences, may actually remember themselves saying, "Dear God, dear God, please let me survive this." And
1: he survived. How was it to come back? I mean, he survived, sorry. And how, uh, how, how did it, uh, did he tell you how was it to come back from such an experience? And how long did this experience even take?
2: Well, that's the question, uh, your, your dear friend just asked. What happened? Of course, no words can possibly describe the changes that occurred under the shower head or how long Indigo was there. You know, a second beat can be 10,000 years. So he hung under the shower head until there's no more hot water, and ritually cleansed himself, and walked into the main room where there were fires burning all night, music was playing. Votives were placed here and there, religious votives, as is customary among some manufacturers to place spiritual items about when things become psychoactive and they offer prayers that it would be a great healing medicine. I know Nikki Sand did and uh, Peter Van de Hayden, now uh, chief scientific officer at Sygen, would pray when uh, they crystallized this material. And so Indigo was no stranger to prayer. So he's in the main room now, the big fire, the all-night fires are burning, cedar, desert, mesquite, all alone in this clandestine site, not far from, uh, well, see, the, the, in the rose. it was set in northern Italy, but it may have been Los Alamos. Um, Meanwhile the walls, the ceilings, the floors, everything is billowing, changing form.
3: But there were no convulsions.
2: It was a feeling of uh grace. And so Indigo dressed in an old blue work shirt and a pair of Levi's clean. and walked out onto the porch of the, the the site, which where there happened to be a full moon. Uh, and in the rose, it was the forest of northern Italy, although it may have been the great deserts of the southwest. And the indigo stood up against the, backed himself against the wall, and slowly slid down the wall and went into a lotus posture and looked at the moonlight and landscape and awaited whatever is going to happen to happen. So the question, of course, from your, your, your listener is what happened? In the rose,
3: indigo simply watched the moon
2: set and the sun rise over seven or eight hours. There was a little patterning of the environment. He could smell the perfumed air. He could see the ground like jewels. He could see the mysterious motion of the trees and the sky. But it was all pretty much just our beautiful earth, this blessed planet upon which we are privileged to live for a moment. And he was thankful for the beauty and mystery of this great gift of life. And he sat there and watched the moon set and the sun rise. Nothing happened but that. In the rose, it was the the teaching was that the greatest gift is is that which we already have, and no drug is necessary to take us
3: there, and it can't be taken away from us. And the sun rose,
2: and Indigo was grateful that he hadn't died or had convulsions and that he'd received a great teaching. And he went in and burned sage and uh, lit candles and bathed ritually and began the next synthesis.
1: Wow, Indigo is such a great character. <laughs> and it's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful journey. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us tonight. Well, stay with me for long, for sure. Especially next time when I look at the full moon, I will dedicate a thought to Indigo and his beautiful story.
2: Thank you, listener, for that question. I hope it answers it.
1: I think it did answer it perfectly.
2: <laughs> right, let me just say uh, as, a, as an observation, as a caution to youth uh, and to people that are new in this realm, <clears throat> It seems to be in the early stages of uh, encounters with psychedelics, a uh, idea that let me take more because I want to hallucinate more and I want to see, you know, crystalline palaces and fantastic landscapes and all of that. Until people keep uh, going for higher and higher doses and they hope that the patterning of the floors and the walls and so forth that they see will somehow open up in some uh, magical uh, landscape
3: um but
2: the early uh experiences certainly uh certainly nikki and those that had access to extremely large doses uh, and uh, humans that have had extremely large doses would say that the most interesting phenomena occur when you don't encourage the visual field to disintegrate you don't wish to break through what we see into some other realm that the best experiences um occur when the visual field is static is frozen trees are trees cars are cars moon is the moon everything looks the same it's perfect
3: just freeze that frame. And then the interesting stuff starts to happen.
1: Yep. <laughs> Thank you. I ha- I'm just having uh comments here in the chat from our audience uh saying such a beautiful story. Thanks so much for sharing. Uh another one. Whoa, he went in burned sage with candles and we got the next sentence. Just whoa. Um So I think a lot of, yeah, thank you so much, Leonard. I think people are really appreciative of a story of Indigo. So thanks again for sharing it. And Indeed, this is the message. We live on the beautiful planet and nature around us is all we need really. We just need to connect with it and take it in. I'm going to go to the next question which was a bit more down to earth. Is there any possibility Leonard could attend the next Breaking Convention in London whenever lockdown allows? And we spoke about this today, so give us a comment here.
0: Well, I'm I'm still in supervision, so I'll need permission of the government to travel. But if uh, Ben will write me a nice letter, and um, I, I hope he will, <laughs> will. I would uh, love to attend Breaking. There's so many friends
2: there and um, so many gifted and great speakers who I... Uh, have heard about for years or a few i know personally and i I just wish to listen to their teachings and meet them and and hug them and uh yes uh join the party the celebration so um yes i'll uh i'll come to breaking the first opportunity in london hopefully in, in august if i can if i have a passport maybe one day again
1: Fingers crossed. I do hope it happened. We would love to have you in London. And uh, yes, since you read so many English, British English books, <laughs> you have to come back to London and walk around, uh, around the old buildings. So we'll take you for a nice walk. I hope you have time.
0: Oh, lovely, lovely to see uh, old London. Uh, a dear artist friend, uh, Simon Tisco. Uh, underground artist of uh, great creativity and merit, who's up quite late, and he knows
2: uh, old London and the more unusual aspects of uh, some of the alleys and bookshops and uh artist. And so I look forward to uh, touring uh, uh, with him and, and other friends in London. Wonderful. In Oxford. Wonderful.
1: Another question from Artem. Rose of Paracelsus is such a beautiful and deep novel. What do you think of the early success of companies like Compass Pathways and MindMed on stock market? Does Six have anything to do with it? Six? I'm not sure what is this about. Does Six have anything to do with it? What are they well, doing six, now? Six.
2: He's, he's speaking of the uh, central characters of Rose. Right, one, sorry. One is the Six. Um, Goodness, what a question. Uh, I do follow um, um uh, I do follow uh, increasingly many hours each day the evolution of the corporatization of psychedelics. I'm very well aware of um Compass and their excellent work and MindMed uh, led by the visionary J R Ron uh, who is quite prominent uh, online. He's all over LinkedIn and I'm enjoying JR's uh <clears throat> proselytization. He got into MindMed by uh his own personal experience, which was transformative for him, so I, I must praise um the effort of, of MindMed and particularly Sibin, um which are neck and neck uh with a phase two trial in Canada for um human application of psilocybin. I follow um uh, about 212 um uh, I follow about 200 with my um uh a colleague uh, Ryan Place who's listening to this in Detroit um uh, uh, corporations and organizations around the world that are advancing the art encompass in mind that are two of them Cyben Field Trip, uh the nascent tactogen uh, a very important startup in uh, Redwood City California um, Algernon, Pharmaceuticals, many others to be named. Uh, do the six have anything to do with this? Hmm. Well, I suppose some mysteries uh, should remain. Uh, certainly the, the early work of the six uh, exposed hundreds of millions of individuals uh, to the psychedelic experience. So that... Um, Perhaps we won't forget that the early work of underground people like Owsley and Nikki and Tim and others unnamed um, were responsible for the wide human exposures whose enthusiasm has led to the current global corporatization.
3: Um, so I suppose you could say the six had something to do with it.
1: Yes, I, I think, um, thank you for answering this. Uh, I think this question comes from the recent news that Compass Pathways is trying to patent, uh, psychedelic therapy, including holding hands and using soft furnishing. So I'm wondering but, uh, if you heard that news at all and do you have anything to comment? Yes,
2: on? I, I can expand on that a, a little. Yeah. Not to, not to alienate, um, uh, Potential dear friends at Compass who have done very good work and uh, uh, employed Peter Thiel's uh, 5 million to good to avail. But there is a divisiveness in the Psy community. We're seeing balkanization of the community as people become more capitalistic. So there is an argument brewing on the effort of Compass to patent, as you as you say, uh, treatment paradigms, and perhaps even the crystalline structure of psilocybin. Others argue it can't be patented because dear Albert synthesized it in the forties, think, and therefore fifties, and therefore uh, it's well known in the literature, and no patent office would try to try to. Uh, Grant that patent. Others saying that uh, new crystalline forms, of various morphs, uh, tend to
3: <clears throat>
2: create a patent loophole. So someone may actually seize control of it. So there's the division between it's okay to patent this drug and have all control go to Compass, and others that say that's uh, anathema and uh, wrong, and this particular angel can't be. Uh, corralled or lassoed, um, that it should be more widespread with many points of light and not controlled by one uh, megalithic uh, corporate entity. Uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to a single entity controlling things. Um, my uh, inclination right now is to go with those that say there should be many points of light. Because economic engines are driven by competition, uh, not monopolies. Well, I think that um, if COMPAS does succeed in, in patenting it, I wish them well. But I also foresee um, endless litigation, certainly through the Supreme Court of the United States, over patent rights in this material over the next decade or longer. So um, we're in for a long uh, and sometimes bouncy ride. From the possible clinical trials not proving out as significantly healing, they've yet to be shown in large groups. We we may have a, a negative report, which will plunge the stocks considerably. We'll see a shaking out of this uh, sci industry in the next three or four years because we're in some sort of bubble right now, great enthusiasm uh typical of trendy sectors uh in capital markets size size sector is just the latest okay. but i think uh, there'll be i think there will be many points of light, and I hope to see that I, I don't think these materials can be successively patented, although I do wish uh, the people accomplished well.
1: Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm going to jump to the next question now. We have very little time, We have 10 minutes. So this is about your book and uh, and it's from anonymous attendee again. Leonard, I engage with most literature literature i can't sorry I can't pronounce things sometimes uh in audiobook form I'm dyslexic and I find I get much more out of listening to a book than reading. I would love to see an audiobook of Rose of Paracelsus. I have listened to the first three chapters in the Rose podcast, and as much as I enjoy them, I really appreciate a cons- consistent and professional narrator to deliver his this great work. Is this something we can look? forward to. So I suppose this is just a question about who you chose to narrate your books and why. uh, And why is it not a professional actor, narrator, reading? But actually, yes, who who, who is reading your book?
2: Well, (laughs) what a question. Um, My dear friends, uh, uh, Kat and Alexa Lakey, uh, who are watching, uh, from uh, the sound studio of Michael Dupler in New York City, um, did a, are doing a podcast of the
0: Rose. that did the first four chapters. Uh, I read the first chapter, uh, rather painfully, uh, with about 20 phone calls which cats spliced together from prison. Uh, the next chapter was read by, uh, brother
2: David Steindl Rost, a uh, 93-year-old Benedictine monk. Well loved, known worldwide. He has six million listeners on his TED Talk. Uh, Brother David read chapter two from, uh, Gut H. Goodhart um, Priory outside Salzburg. Uh, chapter three was read by uh, Ben Sessa in a state of great enthusiasm. Uh, chapter four uh, is read by Julian. Julian Vane in chapter five, which will be quite controversial due to its unusual erotic content, uh, is being read by one of your own, uh, uh, Gaya Harvey. And, uh, we're having such fun, uh, having, uh, members of the Psy community and, and friends, uh, read these chapters in a, uh, volunteer way and, and offering it for free, um, with, um, Cat and Alexa's uh, beautiful editing. We're having such fun bringing people together and having them read. And we'll probably continue that indefinitely through all 30 chapters if I live long enough. <laughs> and uh, we will um, uh, consider an, an an audible or an audio book read uh, after that if, if if there's a public interest in that. But right now, it's um, I'm not fond of corporatization. I do listen to, uh, audiobooks, um, uh, currently, uh, Flaubert's, uh, Madame Bovary as I walk the streets of Santa Fe. So I understand what you're saying, but, uh, it's lovely to hear friends' voices, uh, reading and we're meeting such extraordinary people that come in and volunteer that we thought we would just, um, in- invite, uh, all these lovely people and notables to the party and have them read Read the rose, because it's, it's still our community. Maybe not for long, but for the present, it's ours. Indeed. And there's,
1: um, um, just a comment here that, uh, oh, I've lost it already because the chat goes so quick, but someone, co- co- oh, yes, I love the variety of narrators of the rose, each one deeply connected to the story and to Leonard's personal experiences.
2: Um, there it is. There it is. So someone agrees.
1: Yes, someone agrees. <laughs> and there's a link in the, po- in the chat now to the third chapter if anybody wants to check it out. So click on the last link in the chat
0: Julian um, well, only just read chapter four which has
2: been out for a few weeks and uh um Gaia is reading uh chapter five that's going to be quite something
1: that's going to be a big one for sure <laughs> I've read the whole chapter I've read that chapter <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> Um, Next question is from Mayela, I hope I pronounced your name right. If I don't, I do apologize. Do you think achieving the effects of psychedelics through natural therapies, for example, meditation, breath work, is more fulfilling and beneficial for the individual rather than the fast-track enlightenment through psychedelics?
2: Well, of course, all spiritual practices and and uh, ways of self-healing and exploration uh, have their own benefit. And I think that breath work and yoga, meditation, uh, long walks with friends, simply the intention to grow one's heart and mind, simply that intention by whatever means is uh, a, not only a great blessing, but uh, uh, certainly ultimately as comparable as, as a psychedelic experience. That said, uh I wouldn't consider psychedelics a, a fast track. Uh, true, it may be over in a night or a few days, but people tend to remember their positive transformations, even into their old age, uh, most fondly.
3: That's true. <laughs> um,
1: well, another question is from uh, Lucia. What meaning have you made of your experience in prison? How do you understand it as part of your journey here on earth? Which is a good follow up question now after the previous chats.
2: Well, in prison, I
3: saw dark, the darkness of what we
2: may do to each other. I saw great cruelty, but I also saw
3: nobility. I didn't
2: see, I only saw one man cry in 20 years. These are the lost of the earth. No one cares about prisoners. They are the voiceless and the forgotten. They have no hands. They have no arms, they have no mouths, they are isolated and rejected, some deservingly so, most not. So I learned about the innate dignity of a man or woman against all odds, against all salts, against uh, every defamation and insult, the dignity that can be achieved.
3: I remember the elderly black men
2: in their 70s or 80s, some chair-bound, others on walkers, that had no hope whatsoever, ever seeing a light of day or an ocean or stream or flower again. that they got hardly right.
3: There's truly no hope. And I saw their dignity and their grace and their humility. And I remember that as, as noble. I remember their eyes.
1: is by far the most profound experience, more profound than any psychedelic?
2: Well, life, of course, is more profound than any psych- psychedelics. You know, some people, it's hard to get through life without some illumination, somewhere, sometime. Some people's transformative event occurred in a foxhole in Vietnam or Kuwait. Others' transformative event occurred in churches as they yielded uh, their heart to Christ. Others uh, founded um, on four hits of blatter uh, dancing at the Monterey Festival. So I think that life doesn't let you through it without some insight into the divinity of it all by some means. And our little community is those that perhaps. It's all that divinity on a drug. But most people see it in other ways, a myriad of other ways that it presents in their lives. Breath work. Political activity in Hindustan. The smile of a child or a new mother or an old mother.
3: I think this is a beautiful
1: one to end uh, with, um, this long and beautiful interview. I want to thank you so much for your insights and wisdom and experience that you shared with us today. Um, and maybe just ask, do you have anything else to add from you to our audience tonight before you say good night? Well, good night to the British side. And goodbye
2: to the American viewers. Well, when, just to uh, send my, my love and affection and appreciation to um, many friends and loved ones and uh, to you, Anya, uh, and the, the uh, London Society, Martin, and Gaia and the people I've known throughout London and around the world, to send my deepest appreciation and
3: affection to all.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great uh, day and I hope you ha- can relax and enjoy nature today after this long, long conversation and don't do too much work please. And enjoy your, uh, the rest of the weekend.
2: Thank you, thank you, Anya. It was lovely. Lovely to meet with you and to, to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.